Hey everyone, it's Costa Mesa Mayor John Stevens and this is Costa Mesa Now. Welcome to the City of Costa Mesa's first podcast episode. I'm really excited to be launching this inaugural podcast and we look forward to sharing with the world what's going on in Costa Mesa Now. You know, when we look at Costa Mesa's rich and colorful history, we have to recognize the importance the military has played in the development of our fine city. Today, Costa Mesa is a cutting edge, diversely thriving community with everything a great city could wish for. We have world-class retail shopping and performing arts centers, top-rated restaurants, and a foodie scene to be envied. A thriving arts community, which is why we're known as the City of the Arts, and Costa Mesa is just a great place to live and raise a family here in Southern California. Looking at our beautiful modern city today, it's sometimes difficult to imagine that nearly 80 years ago, almost one-fifth of Costa Mesa's land area was once an important training center for our nation's effort during World War II. Most of this land was part of the Santa Ana Army Air Base. Fast forward to 2016, and another important milestone occurred in Costa Mesa's history with the opening of Heroes Hall at the OC Fair and Events Center. Heroes Hall is a free, permanent, year-round museum and education center with exhibitions, performances, and educational programs that celebrate the legacy of Orange County veterans and others who have served our nation. The two-story exhibition space rotates themes semi-annually, with each focusing on an aspect of the personal stories and experiences of veterans. And so, with all this military and veteran history right here in our own backyard, what better way to kick off our initial podcast than discussing veterans' issues, which are near and dear to all of us. Today, it is my distinct pleasure to be co-hosting this podcast with Costa Mesa Mayor Pro Tem Andrea Marr, who herself is a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and a Navy veteran. Andrea's military credentials are impressive. We'll hear more about her veteran background as she joins us in a few minutes. In addition to Andrea, we will be joined by Nick Berardino, who is a Marine and a Vietnam veteran, and Alex Gonzalez, who is our Chief of Staff here in Costa Mesa, and who served in Operation Enduring Freedom as a sailor in the Navy. So let's jump in and get started. So welcome everybody. We're here at Heroes Hall right here in Costa Mesa at the Orange County Fair and Events Center. And this is our first episode of Costa Mesa Now. Now this is a very special episode for our first episode. Um, we have uh, Mayor Pro Tem Andrea Marr and uh, Alex Gonzalez, who's our Chief of Staff, and Nick Berardino, who's actually the President and the Founder of Heroes Hall. And I, each one of these um, podcasts is going to have a council member that is going to join me, and we're just going to have a conversation about issues that are important to the city and that people want to hear about. And I picked this as our first one because, number one, 
Andrea Marr is the mayor pro tem, <laughs> so she gets to go first. And also we're going to talk about a very important issue, and that's veterans and veterans affairs. Each one of the guests have a military background that they're going to talk about. They're going to talk about how they got into the military, what their experience was in the military, and what they're doing now with respect to veterans affairs. So we hope you enjoy this Costa Mesa podcast, episode one, Costa Mesa Now. So welcome, welcome everybody. Thank you for being here. <laughs> Thanks for having us, John. How'd that go? How'd that, that go? Was great. Is that pretty that was good? Great. Yeah. Congratulations. All right, perfect. I got that on the first take. I, I got that on the first take. Yeah. So that's good. So let's go. <laughs> let's just go around the table. Sure. And and so Alex, you go first and say, what was your uh, um, what what was the branch that you that you were in? It was the Navy, right? That's correct. And what yeah. was the rank when you were your rank when you got out? When I got out, I was a petty officer second class. Okay, so Petty Officer Second Class, so you definitely would have had to salute uh, uh, Andrea. Oh yeah, Andrea she might have been a division person. officer, a department head, someone I, I would have. I was just a division <laughs> officer. Yeah. So, what was you, so, so we're going to talk a lot about your experience in the Navy, Andrea, but what was your rank when you got out? I was a lieutenant when I got out. Okay, cool. And then, and then Nick, you were in the Marines. I was in the Marines. I was uh, in the Marine Corps from 19... Well, I was in Vietnam from 1967 to 68. I only did two years in the Marines because I was one of the lucky ones who was drafted in the Marine Corps. So, yeah. And uh, I was in Vietnam from 67 to 68, Special Landing Force Battalion Landing Team. So we were talking before about how we're going to do our origin stories, how you got involved in the military, and yours is the easiest one. I was drafted, right? I, I was drafted. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how old were you? I was 19 and I went through boot camp wearing a sign around my neck that said, I didn't want to be a Marine. Um, you know, the old days in the Marine Corps in the 60s, I mean, uh, if you weren't like a gung-ho volunteer, you know, you were a little bit of an outcast. So it was, it was a quite an adjustment, quite an adjustment for sure. How did you find out you were drafted? I um, opened the order while I was walking down uh, a uh, college campus oh. and you know oh, saw that and thought uh oh uh, so were you in college well I wasn't uh, I mean I was around there in college hanging yeah. out because if you were in college back in those days you got a deferment right well you in those days you you would get a deferment if you if you you know uh, were enrolled in a certain number of classes, but you know it was the old draft board system. It wasn't, it wasn't the uh, following system, which was the uh, lottery, where you, everybody was given a number. Oh, right. It was the old lottery. draft board system. Yeah. And I grew up in an inner city community. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in South Central Los Angeles. Oh, okay. And so, uh, if you lived in the inner city, you know that's where they would. The draft boards, this, what they call the Selective Service Board, you know, would be in control. I don't even know how they work it, to tell you the truth. And, yeah. Where did you go to boot camp? MCRD, San Diego. All right, Hollywood Marine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> explain, explain that, Alex. Really Hollywood Marines are from the, uh, on, from the West Coast. Yeah. Right, so you got Los Angeles just up the street, so it's really easy to, uh, you know, anyone who's um, living west of the Mississippi, they get sent over there. And the alternative is Paris Island. Paris Island, right? Yeah. So you 
all Marines either went to West Coast or East Coast to go to boot camp. So yeah. there's a lot of reputation with those. And what two are they places. called? They're not called Hollywood Marines. What are they called? I don't know the nickname for them actually. We call them North Cackalackians. For North Carolina, <laughs> and that's what we say. Oh man, that guy's a North Cackalackian. You know, he came from yeah. Camp Lejeune. Is yeah. where they yeah. where they go, mm -hmm. yeah. or or you know, or Mosquito Bay, or you know. Yeah, I, I mentioned there were more more places back then. I don't know. Those are the two that I'm I'm familiar with that are really Paris Islands, where everyone goes through now. I think. Right? Oh no, there's no, some no, Marines. No, no, still. Yeah, it's still the largest, I think, actually. So Alex, you weren't drafted. You enlisted. So what? What what motivated you to do something like that? Well, uh, Mayor, thank you for having me on again. Uh, I served from 2009 to 2015. And um, a little bit before that, I was in the Explorer program, the Police Explorer program at uh, Newport Beach Police. And then briefly in Santa Ana, because I was tasting both worlds, just kind of checking it out. Um, and through those experiences, a mentor suggested that I um, enlist for service. So I started looking at the different jobs that were available. And uh, the one that I really wanted to do was Bomb Squad. I wanted to become an explosive ordnance disposal tech. Yeah. Of course, I showed up with the contract, you know, a few days later with my, at my mom's house, and um, she was not pleased, to yeah. say the least. Yeah. That's so, a super dangerous job, probably yeah. one of the most dangerous jobs. Yeah, so after um, back and forth, you know, she really insisted that I pick another um, MOS, another uh, military occupational specialty. And uh, that's where I landed on uh, uh, enlisting as an intelligence specialist. Okay, good, mm -hmm. good, great, great. And so then you've got a great origin story. So, <laughs> uh, so, so my, uh, my as, you, as you, you know, uh, Andrea, she'll tell you, you went to the Na went to the Naval Academy. Mm -hmm. So, how did you, how did that happen? How did you get from you're going to tell us from Italy to the Naval Academy? Yeah. So. I'll try to make this story as short as possible, but um, so my dad, State Department, we were stationed in Rome, Italy. I went to high school there, um, and I guess I did well on like my PSATs or something obscure, and so I got this invitation for a week of summer camp in Annapolis, and like didn't really know what the heck I was getting myself into. There was a picture of somebody kayaking on the cover, I'll never forget it, and I was like, <laughs> I'm gonna go kayak in Annapolis, that sounds awesome. Um, and I had a really good friend who was in school with me in Italy and then went and did her senior year of high school in, uh, in Virginia, and she was a little bit older than me. So I convinced my parents to send me back to the States so I could go to summer camp at Annapolis and go to my friend's high school graduation. So uh, I get to Annapolis. It's clearly not summer camp, right? I mean, like, yeah. there's a little bit of kayak. We did get to go out in kayaks, yeah. but the last day they kind of do like mini boot camp, yell at you while you do push-ups and yeah. slosh water on the floor yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Um, and my squad leader, who was a woman, and Catherine Ventura, I'll never forget her, was kind of one of my uh, mentors actually when I like got into the academy, but she recommended me, I was like the highest rank little high schooler in my squad, and she pulled me aside afterwards and said like, you really need to go here, like yeah. you are, you're cut out for this. So. I applied, my parents thought there was no chance in hell I was gonna get in. <laughs> they were like, that's nice, <laughs> have fun. What's your backup school? Um, yeah. And then I, I got all what the way- What was your backup school? Colorado State. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, cool. yeah. I got, <laughs> I got all the way uh, through the process, but I needed a congressional nomination. We were living in Rome, so I didn't have a congressman. No congressman's in Rome. But my dad's boss was a former ambassador who knew somebody in the vice president's office and so I got a nomination from Vice President Al Gore. Wow. Which was kind of kind of cool. My dad actually just found the letter in like in the garage in a box and sent it to me. It's just like really 
kind letter about how this poor expatriate living in Rome didn't have a congressman and who could help her out. So. Wow, what an interesting story. Yeah. And so, so, so now we've kind of covered all the origins and how you guys got in. So tell me about your experience, though, at the Naval Academy. Um, yeah. Especially, especially for a, 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 a young woman, 17 years old, 17-year-old expatriate woman yeah. at the Naval Academy. Uh, it was complete culture shock. I mean, yeah. I, like, I didn't get any of the movie references or the pop culture references. I lived overseas for so long. Um, and you know, as much of a venerated institution as the Naval Academy is, the fact is even in 2001 when I got there, there were very few women. It was 12% or so, which is really not much more than what they started admitting in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think I've kind of I've thought about this a lot over in the last 20 years since I graduated. But and it's really possible to hold two things in your head at one time, right? This idea that it's this incredible institution. I learned so much about leadership and about um, just sort of like what kind of person I wanted to be. But then also, it's an institution that I think, especially in 2001, was ripe with sexism. That mm -hmm. was really struggling to figure out what you do with women in the military. Mm -hmm. That as much as the idea was to sort of break you down your freshman year and then build you back up, really struggled with the building you back up part if you were a woman. Yeah. And, um, and I like to think some of those things have changed. I've seen that a lot of them have changed. The percentages have gone up. But I, I think some of the ins these institutions that have existed for a really long time that we think are just these historical landmarks, it's, it's possible to have complicated thoughts about how, how they've evolved over time and how they need to continue to evolve. Right. Now, you told me the story about uh, it's kind of symbolic in a way of, of putting, when you put the hat on the Herndon uh, yeah, monument. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And you would have been the perfect person to put get up there. but. <laughs> They didn't want you to put that hat up there. Yeah, so the end of your freshman year, sort of commemorating that you're no longer a plebe. Um, plebes have to wear like literally a different head covering, a yeah. different hat than everybody else. And so the symbol of like, you're not a freshman there anymore and you've got additional freedoms and you're not gonna get just yelled at by random people all day, any day, was to put an upperclassman's hat on the top of this obelisk monument. And they literally grease it with Crisco. The upperclassmen grease it with Crisco beforehand. And so a lot of people have seen it on TV or it's like aired live on YouTube now. And ideally, you'd think like the women would be the one that they want to be at the top of the pyramid to put the hat on. And I remember some guy like yanking me down by the arm and saying, we do not want a woman to be the one who right. like, gets up there. Like, you better stand back. You could have been the first one probably, the first woman to put I think, I'm not sure actually when the first one was, but yeah, it's just this idea that like at every, like at every turn, there was somebody who was like, oh, to literally that, pull, it's symbolic, it's right? Symbolic. I mean, to pull, totally. pull you down yeah. and not let you kind of get up to the top. That's interesting. Right. right. So, anyway, it's complicated. I'm, were, I'm proud that I went there. But. Were you at the academy when September 11th happened? I was. Okay. Yeah, that was a. How was that experience? Just kind of curious to hear about Yeah, um, so I was, a, I was a freshman. I was in English class, and my professor turned on the TV and we saw what was happening. And the Naval Academy was listed as one of the sites that was potentially in, in danger on that day. So we were locked down. We were in the hall, uh, in Bancroft Hall, like where we, where we live. And we took rotations going to meals. But I think more than anything, it really changed the dynamic of what we were doing. It was very clear. We, we weren't in wartime when, when we got there. And by the time we graduated, there was going to be some kind of major conflict. Um, and then later, I was on a like on a Taekwondo trip, and we're in the hotel when we officially like declared war and mm. you know started started bombing Iraq. So 
um, it was really eye-opening, especially for the seniors who were there, who, you know, started, started as happy-go-lucky seniors, and by the time they graduated, we were very much um, at war. Engaged, right. Yeah. So speaking of war, so we're talking about the experiences that, that, that you, the three of you had in the military, mm -hmm. and Nick, you had some heavy combat, including mm -hmm. being at Quezon. Can you, can you share, share what you're willing to share with us about that sure. experience? I mean, um, it was one of the motivations for this museum, actually, was what motivated me the most was um, I was a combat Marine. I was on the battalion landing team. So um, in that time, they called Special Landing Forces Battalion Landing Team. Yeah. So I was a machine gunner, and um, I was there from April 67 through May of 68. So I was involved in Tet, and um, that, and, uh, and of course, at Route 9, Siege of Quezon. So we, I saw a lot of combat, obviously, and you know, the, the heartbreak from it is, is unspeakable. Um, what you see, you can never imagine in your mind. What you see happens to the human body that's hit multiple times, sometimes by shrapnel and small arms fire, all at the same time. Um, you get direct hits from artillery where there's nothing left. I mean, there's nothing left. Um, so that is a striking part of war that doesn't get discussed. And so uh, the price for freedom is beyond comprehension for normal, everyday people. Right. And for, even for veterans who haven't been engaged in combat, I mean, it's Absolutely. very difficult to, to understand it. So it, what we did here was to say we wanted to show through veterans' eyes that freedom isn't free. Yes. This price that is paid for this freedom is, like I said, not to be redundant, incomprehensible. Yes. I mean, and so I'm, you, so I thought we need to educate the public and we need to educate them through our eyes to say, look, this is really what this is about. Yeah. And I think it changes you. You're never the same. And you were such a young man. I, mean, I was said, such a young man. What were you, you said, you said 19. Right? Yeah, 19, yeah, 19 years 19. old. And, um, you know, my first patrol that I ever went on, first patrol, which was a, a day after I'd come into country, the point man was walking and he hit a, uh, a mine. I saw him get blown into the air 15, 20 feet maybe, I can't recall. And when he came down with no legs, um, you know it's real. This is, this is real. Sure. And you know, so many stories about so many other. I've been in therapy myself, which I encourage all vets. I'm in my th third year of therapy. And because you can never get it out of you. I mean, right. every day is a dark day, you know? And I mean, that seems like hyperbole. How can every day be a dark day? But every day there's always that cloud. There's always that memory. And, um, and people forget, like, I, I, I was helping a, a man recently that lives here in, in Costa Mesa. He goes, he was only in country three weeks, goes out on, on a patrol, 
fire team, they get hit from the front. He's thinking that oh, I, he had another guy with him who's only in country two weeks and another guy had only been there five days. They go and try on a frontal attack to, to um, uh, flank him, which he was new there knowing when you're getting hit that much, don't do your military training and try to flank. You've got to establish things. So there he goes. He's a young man. He's only been there. His friend that's only been there a couple of weeks, he gets, the, his friend gets two in the chest. Mm -hmm. He gets, the, the person, he gets his whole leg blown apart. My goodness. And the third guy ran. Yeah. So he had to lay there for 90 minutes because they couldn't get helicopters down. Watch his friend bleed out and, you know, watch his whole life, his whole future go in front of him. That's just one of many, many stories. And you know, you told me this the other the other day when we talked. How you know this is obviously a completely formative experience for mm -hmm. you. You were 19, you were 20 years old, and mm -hmm. essentially, you know, in in large part, a lot of your the rest of your life has been dedicated to uh, veterans issues mm -hmm. and and mm -hmm. so forth. But you said something that I found very interesting. How veterans who had that experience. And then they come back, and then they, you know, have kids, and then they have a job, and they they go on, and then much later in life when they retire, and it's a more quiet period, a lot of those memories start to come back, and that's when they need sometimes the most most help with their it, reaction it, to it. Yes, and it's very very dangerous for combat veterans, uh, right after 65 in retirement. It is dangerous because that's when people. And that's why, you know, um, working so hard to expand benefits. Because once you retire, you're at home. And then the, the memories come back. And how do, you, how do you erase in your mind that kid that was with you, that mm -hmm. you loved, and you fought with? Maybe, I have a friend who we were in country together 11 months. He was you know, only weeks away from being shipped out. And, you know, I'm on an Amtrak carrying the machine gun. <laughs> We're crossing uh, somewhere around the Quang Tree River, and I'm saying to him, hey, man, how you doing? Hey, good. Get off the Amtrak, Nick. Oh, man, I'm riding, you know, which is against the rules. Mm -hmm. But I've not been following rules much yeah. of my whole life. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm smiling to see you. And yeah. then I hear something. Boom, boom, artillery ahead. And, you know, we get down and the things, and they go, Romero, Romero is what we called him, just got it in the legs on shrapnel. He couldn't, he, he can't make it. Oh, my goodness. And that's, how do you forget that face? No, how yeah. do you forget that moment? And there's many, many more moments like that. Yeah. My best friend, Italian guy, he gets through, we're at, we go through Tet together. He's on special landing forces to me too, which means helicopter drop, insertion, insertion, insertion all the time. This guy had an attitude was unbelievable. You wouldn't think it was phasing him. And he, he fought so hard, he was gonna meet his wife and his one R&R &R in Hawaii. She sends him a Dear John letter. Mm. We get, and this was up on Route 9 at Quezon where you're just getting hit all day. We get a, a break. He comes out of the hole and reads the Dear John letter and shoots himself. Yes. What people do not understand about the war experience is there's so many things. Friendly fire, 
yeah. which we're not allowed to discuss. And anybody in the military knows you don't talk about friendly fire incidents, period. Yeah. Civilian kills, because they're mistakes. It's, it's, it's not TV. Once you get hit, it is noisy. There's explosions, there's dust, there's smoke, there's fire. I mean, it's really controlled chaos, right? Yeah. They don't know about those incidents. They don't know about the friendly fire, the civilian kills, the mistakes, the suicides over there, the drug overdoses. That's all part of this war experience right. that we want to bring to people and try to bring to people through this venue. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for your service, by the way. This is, is I, I should have started out by saying that. And, uh, and thank you for all you're doing. I mean, this is wonderful to have Heroes Hall here and to have it in Costa Mesa. We're all very proud of it on the, council and the, and the whole community. The City Council of Costa Mesa, regardless of partisanship issues and many other issues that always plague every local jurisdiction, the leadership of the City Council of Costa Mesa has been sterling. I have, I've been in politics, as you know, actually 56 years, because I worked for a congressman before I went to Vietnam at 17. <laughs> and I've never seen in a local jurisdiction, the Board of Supervisors, I've got to give them credit too. Yeah. But this council has adopted this place. This is almost like, yeah, this is our place and this is our country. And I, I can't thank you enough, both of you, for your leadership on this. This is a city council has never abandoned the veterans on this place. Well, it's, the le it's the least we could do. Mm -hmm. And Andrea, you were a, a, you were a nuclear engineer. So tell yeah. about that experience. I mean, so that's the, you know, Nick's experience in, in combat. Um, I think one of the things that's so interesting to me, and we'll, we'll talk about veterans in general here in a second, yeah, but, yeah. but there's such a range of experiences that you, you have when you're, when you're in, right? I mean, there were people who were super forward deployed um, and who, whose job, the expectation is your job is you will be in combat, right? Um, and then there's all these support functions, people who are at the bases, mostly stateside, um, and, and will never go into one of those roles. And the Navy is so weird because we're not likely to be in combat. There hasn't been like an at-sea shooting war in a really long time. Um, but you still deploy and spend a whole heck of a lot of time out to sea. And generally your job, especially on an aircraft carrier, and, and as much as I joke about how cushy it is, like the, your job, especially Operation Enduring Freedom, was to be there so that we could launch flights into Afghanistan. Um, and so for the most part, that was what we did was we, you know, the aircraft carrier sat in the Persian Gulf and like flew, you know, made sure that we were ready at all times to fly missions. The thing about aircraft carriers are that they're all nuclear powered. So there are submarines and there are aircraft carriers that are nuclear powered in the Navy. Everything else basically runs on jet fuel, gas. Um, and so when I graduated from the Naval Academy, I was a surface warfare officer with a nuclear designation. So my job was to be a ship driver, um, but I also was supposed to specifically be a ship driver with the ability to be in engineering on a nuclear powered aircraft carrier. So I did two years on Princeton and then I went to school for the nuclear part of my designation and then I ended up basically in the bowels. You can't get any, it's like seven stories below the waterline. Yeah. You can kind of picture it's that, right? It's a fun right? walk down there. I've it's, been down there. Yeah. <laughs> the, first, the first like two weeks you're out to sea and you're doing the, that literally that ladder that goes from the bowels all the way to like where you eat, yeah. <laughs> your legs are exhausted because yeah. you aren't used to climbing that many stairs in one day. Um, but yeah, so I was designated nuclear and my job was to run one of the reactors on the aircraft carrier. 
And I had a watch team that was responsible for it, and um, that's yeah, that was my yeah. job. And you got to wear a decimeter when you go down there. Yeah. Um, because you know you're exposed to radiation, so you have to monitor how much you're exposed to every day. So right. that was pretty cool, kind of learning that from the sailors that were down there working. Yeah. 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 We all. The, the joke is that we all glow in the dark after. <laughs> so, so, so this part, I want to get into like what's happening with your all of your work in in, in, in with veterans, but. But before I do, parting shots. I mean, do, do, is there anything you want to say that you haven't said already about your experience in, in, in the Marines that you think that the folks of Costa Mesa now would like to hear? No, I don't no, you I got think it? I covered, covered it. it? Yeah. That's what we call in my business the closeout question. Do <laughs> you remember everything? Did I get everything? Okay, good. Wait, are we good. on trial? Right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, 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 no. Are you lawyering us? No, it's a closeout question. Okay, so then let's move into the like the next the next phase of our discussion, which is vet veterans affairs, and, and let's go to you, Alex, first because you are the on the veterans council. Your uh, supervisor, Katrina Foley's. Uh, appointment to the Veterans Council for the County of Orange, so so talk about what that what that entails, what that what that council is, what the council does, and then what you do within that council. Yeah, um, I was honored to be appointed by the supervisor to the Veterans Advisory Committee um, as a, as a as a representative for District Two. Um, so what that means is um, I interact with veterans in the district. Right, um, we look more closely at issues impacting veterans on a county level. The county has a veteran service office um, that is open Monday to Friday from 9 to 5, um, and they service veteran, veterans on a wide variety of different support and services. Everything from processing veterans' benefits through the Veterans Affairs right um, to assisting them with college enrollment, um, waiving the fees with universities that have those programs and partnerships, and then um, ensuring that they have um, you know, access to all the services offered by the state and other local jurisdictions. In addition to that, um, I'd just like to talk a little bit about um, OC for Vets, which is at the county. Um, they have a great, amazing resource for veterans that are looking to, um, you know, that are looking for that additional support, that additional um, layer of um, guidance and counsel to help them assimilate into life and, or reassimilate when they get out and to um, provide any necessary um, guidance throughout their own development as they come out of the military. So it's a great um, resource and asset that veterans have here. It's completely free. Um, and so my job is to... So is there a website that you've committed to memory that you could uh, share with our, our listeners or, or... I don't rem I know it's OC for Vets, but I can't remember if it's .com or .org. Um, OC for Vets, and it's either .com or .org. Yes, but definitely <laughs> Google. OC for vets, it'll pop right up. It's the first link. Okay. Um, and then and then you can call in. But um, yeah, like I said, most most of my time I'm I'm collaborating and working with the veterans in the district, identifying issues that are important to them, um, and you know discussing those with the supervisor and advising how the county can best support them. And, and I've got one. Yes. Could we please, please have that VSO? office open like either late at night or on Saturdays because I work from nine to five and I think most people do and okay. so trying to like I have to literally take time off to like 
go to the VSO. It's very annoying. So yeah. I just yeah. want to put that out there for you. Awesome. <laughs> I don't know if I'll I'm the only one. have to take it to staff. I don't know if I'm the only one that has that issue. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good issue. So, so, and, and, and so you, speaking of veterans benefits, you went to college on the, on the GI Bill. I did. Talk yes. about that. So um, I got out in 2015. Um, I spent about six months here at home in Costa Mesa figuring out what to do. And I have to say that um, the VA has made great strides in servicing veterans, especially the newer ones that are coming out. Um, all of this is now accessible for a veteran to process online. So it was really easy to request the um, eligibility letter from the VA. I got the letter, I sent it off to the school, and off I went. I was enrolled in class and, and under you know, the GI Bill. They just collected um, the deposits directly from the VA. So I didn't have to worry about anything. Um, I received a monthly stipend, uh, a living allowance uh, during the uh, time that I was in session. And then we had like a, every semester we got like a book stipend and stuff. So there's, there's different benefits tailored to the different needs depending on what you're studying, what your major is. Um, but um, I have to say it was really seamless for me and, and it was really beneficial. And so the, the, the advisory committee, that's, there's somebody from each one of the five uh, uh, districts, county districts, and you're the representative for district two. Yeah, that's right. So we have five and then we have four at-large members currently one vacancy but yes so if somebody wanted to get in touch with you how would they how would they do that um, so Alex we don't, Gonzalez we don't have a an official email as it were but I'm more than happy to provide my email um, to anyone who's uh, hoping to get in contact with me and they could go, they could Google you and so Nick your involvement in veterans affairs is is a absolutely legendary. And I think I was you're going to use the word legendary. If you you're the champion, yeah. the champion of veterans. So we could do uh, uh, two podcasts just on that topic. <laughs> yes. But but tell us some of the involvement that you have and some of the things that you're seeing that that veterans need and 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 also the other thing I, I'd like you to talk about. And you know these guys will come in and, and and ask questions. But as somebody who is just a civilian who has never been in the military. You know, what, what, can, what can we do? What can we do to support veterans in, in our community? Well, uh, uh, I'll, I'll give a little bit of historical. Thing. When I came home from Vietnam, it was 1968, I flew in, I think it's Travis Air Force Base that's up in San Francisco. And once you landed, they told you take off your uniforms because we would have to go to the San Francisco airport, then civilian flights to fly home from there and to avoid people spitting on you and throwing ice that at is, you. For me, that is just the worst we, we, part of this. You're just coming home from war. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, your skin, it takes months, because you're up on, I was up on the rock pile over there right by Quezon, it's all red dirt, and it takes months to get that out. So uh, that was our, our treatment. We came home, I came home, I uh, got to the San Francisco airport, uh, somebody threw, uh, I kept, I changed my shirt, but I kept my pants on, you know. I was hustling because I wanted to get home, you know, yeah. to fly to L.A. because I was from South Central L.A. And somebody threw it, uh, uh, I can still see it like a, a, a Coke glass, you know. Yeah. Not a real glass, but paper cup, yeah. you know, vice at me. You know, my inclination at that time was... <laughs> We're going to finish this right yeah. now. Who do you but think then, you're throwing a Coke at? Yeah. I, but then I realized, oh, got to catch that plane. Yeah. So that was 
coming home, and it was terrible. I mean, yeah. we had to grow our hair long because we had to hide because everybody was so anti-war, anti-veteran. Right. We could not re-enter our social group unless we hid. And so we all went into hiding, and you'll see, you know, so we, we, we had to do that. How did the VA treat us? <laughs> 1968, they didn't treat us. Yeah. I mean, we had a grand total of, I think, was $131 a month to go to school on. GI Bill was impossible. We were dying from Agent Orange, and somehow the VA thought that the fact that they could defoliate these forests in front of us and essentially, you know, um, kill everything in sight, but spraying on us wouldn't have any effect. Yeah. So we had to take our government to court. The Vietnam vets, you know, we took them to court. We finally won in the Supreme Court. To took us to 1984 to litigate it, to say, yeah, you know that stuff that you're spraying is killing all that forestry? Guess what? It's not good for us either. Yeah. So our experience, much different. I mean, it so, was a fight from the beginning to even get benefits. No, and if you went to get benefits, you were called a sissy or a man, you're not part of the team, you know, you go there, you... So it was, and so it's, it was inspiring though, uh, for a long struggle for Vietnam veterans that um, really continues today. I mean, this is a group of people that um, are pushed aside and were pushed aside, but I think it really motivated me saying, <laughs> that didn't yeah. work. And so, um, I'm very, very proud to have worked with so many great people, you know, not only building the museum, but now we have a group that is called Valor, which is the Veterans Alliance of Orange County that has a, a two-prong two in our organization. We have the nonprofit, which we involve ourselves in anything we can do to help, you know, the veteran community that, you know, can qualify for our projects. We have a political arm called PAC. And the, re, you know, and the reason why we established that was because so often, particularly Vietnam vets, I don't know if this is the experience, but we've been manipulated by politicians since the 60s. Yeah. And we're done with it. And it took us a long time to get done with it because, you know, we were all having to work too. And so, um, and that is to ensure that veterans and that we will use, we have been coalition building, and I think soon people will see a tsunami coalition. I mean, literally a tsunami. And the purpose is, because we want to speak with one voice on, on one particular issue, which is the cemetery issue, but we're going to speak with one voice, and we're going to say, enough's enough, and uh, let's, let's put it out there to let everyone evaluate, really, how veterans are treated in this county. And I think you would be surprised to see the lack of... Um, I think the lack of enthusiasm by a lot of corporations in the county and developers in the county who have made done so well because of the right. county. But but you know this is uh, veterans have have really struggled here and so so uh, so Nick it. you've you've also been in, involved for years in in organized labor specifically mm -hmm. you know basically running the OCEA mm -hmm. Orange County Employees Association. So you mentioned some groups that maybe have not been as supportive, but at least for me looking into, from my perspective, it looks like labor has been, there's been a good partnership between veterans and labor. Can you talk about that? Labor has always been the friend of vets. It always has been. And as much criticism that's leveled at unions and stuff, and we'll hear it from vets too. We have some very conservative vets. 
The labor has always been there. It's been there from day one. And we built uh, what's called the labor and uh, veterans here, right here in Costa Mesa. The, the biggest Veterans Day events in Orange County have come here that we started uh, I think seven years ago, we haven't had COVID, but mm -hmm. we started with 500 people and we've gone up to 7,000 people. It's huge. Great event. It's huge. Yeah. It's huge. Great event. And it was because we really believed that, you know, we try to get the rest of the community to step up, but they don't. They take, all of us, people just assume that, hey, you serve, well, thank you. You know, thank you yeah. for your service. Well, can you help us out here? Thank you. Um, so. <laughs> Yeah. That's why we built this, and the labor community is 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 huge in terms of helmets to hard hats to uh, uh, other programs that you know exist in the labor community to help veterans, and so. But here in Costa Mesa, you know, it's really kind of the veteran hub of Orange County. Is here in Costa Mesa. Do you know that there's another? Veterans Museum in Costa Mesa. Do you know about the, I've no, seen the Noble Cause Foundation? Yes, has uh, right on the 16th Street and and, and, and Pomona, right? Um, and and uh, Cornell, his name's last name's escaping me, but he's it's 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 World War it's World War II memorabilia. Right, it's got a plane inside. Have you ever been there? I haven't. It's amazing. No, it's amazing. It's I was there on uh, Memorial Day. It's uh, it's really quite something, and then they they lined out all uh, laid out all of the uh, the, the vintage jeeps, and, really and we cool, paraded yeah. those up to um, Harborlong uh, Cemetery. It was quite something. It's not like the the Memorial Day celebration that we had pre-pandemic and that we'll have post-pandemic, but it was nice. Yeah. But the but the museum was really quite something. The museum is nice, and we work with Cornell and. He, on our Veterans Day, he's the one that supplies all that, get, a lot of that equipment that's in there comes here. Yeah. Uh, as you know, on the Veterans Day here in Costa Mesa. He's a great yeah. guy. So, so, but, but what about the, the question that I asked about what can civilians do? What, what, what type of support can we give to veterans? What, what that would be either of comfort or of some type of constructive support? And, and the constructive support and it's very simple. It's just, it's so, so simple. It's what this museum's about. It's what Valor's about. It's about all the veterans in this. The community, all we ask is listen to us. That's it. Hear our voice. Hear our voice on those issues and support our voice. It's that simple. You know, Sure, we'd like more money and to fund these things as we live on shoestrings, you know, and we would love the community to be more supportive, but that's something we have to keep working on. But just listen. Mm -hmm. Just listen and hear what we have to say. When we tell you about today what we're facing, the, the veterans from the, 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 the desert wars, you know, they're dying because of smoke. They, they inhaled from the trash uh, heaps. From the trash heaps and the tires. Yeah. And what's the VA said so far, at least today, is they're not putting that yet. Their veterans are having to fight for it as, as, as being a cancerous thing like Agent Orange. Mm -hmm. Listen to us, because every one of us, and, and you know, sure, there's us that were in combat, but this is a team effort. Every single veteran 
is trained, number one, as a comrade in arms. I mean, they all have many other duties, and you know, and we take like Andrew, the brilliant ones, you know, doing brilliant things. You know, right. some of us old hacks, you know, give us a, a machine, <laughs> point us in the right direction, and that's about oh, all we built a museum. We you get credit for that. We, yeah. So we can handle, but it's a team effort. And remember, everybody's trained first. They, everybody, whether it's the academy or boot camp, doesn't matter. Everybody has to go through the same training as combat training. Because there are times, and I've been times in Vietnam, where it doesn't matter if you're a radio man right. or a cook, you're coming up to the line. Yeah. I've seen that happen. You know, I mean, I've seen that happen. We need you. We need that gun. Yeah. And everybody's trained to that. So the veteran community is, is made up of a great team of people and it takes a lot of people to to serve and fight for this country and just listen to us yeah. just hear our voice it's all we're asking hear our voice well that's great then we're i hope people listen to the podcast well people that's, should listen to the yeah. podcast and there should be more of these and these should be done in every city and they should be done by every mayor yeah. because and I, I, I really get upset with a lot of wealthy developers in the county. I got to be honest here. Yeah. I can be honest. Yeah, right? of course. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's why we're here. Because these guys have made billions of dollars, I mean billions, off of this. And you try to get some of them, some of them are very good, most of them aren't so good. And you try to get, and corporations say, hey, you got to help the veteran community. And it's tough. You know, it's just yeah. really tough. And I think it's because they just don't know the story or they've been immune from it. I think when everybody hears the story, how can you, how can you say no? So really hope that you know, everybody should be doing what you're doing because we're all here because of all of us, every one of us. That's why we're here. But freedom I, isn't free. I, I but go, go ahead. I mean, one of the things is that because, because it's an all-volunteer force right now, I don't remember what the number is, but there is only a teeny, tiny number of Americans who volunteer to serve in that way, right? right? I mean, it is, I, I, I want to throw out a number, but it's very small. And so I think it's a little bit of like, like you're an alien on an island because most people don't have any idea what your service was exactly like. Right. Exactly and so, right. And so as long as we sort of treat the veteran, the veteran community as like, being so distant and separate, I think that a lot of people back on shore are kind of like, well, I don't know how to help them. They're on that island, right? Like, they're, they're over there. Um, one of the organizations that I'm really involved with is called Team Red, White, and Blue. And there's a Team Red, White, and Blue Orange County chapter. And the whole point of it, um, the mission is to enrich veterans' lives in their communities through activity. And so we go on hikes. We, uh, we run the flag. Like, if you randomly see people in red t-shirts running around with the American flag, like, that's us. Mm -hmm. um, we do just any kind of random physical activity, but like in our communities. And so the idea is like people see us. Um, we did yoga in Huntington Beach at Bellaterra on Sunday, like in the middle of Bellaterra, right? Yeah. And so it's this idea that like we are part of the community, we are in the community, we are integrated. Um, and I've seen you running down the beach. And yeah, like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. I did a yeah. Was, we, on, was that on Memorial Day or what we did that? a um, Batan Death March Memorial actually, and okay. we. Um, I, I walked from uh, hunting from sea legs at the beach, like down to the peninsula with, wow. a, with a group of folks um, to just sort of 
again, like be, be seen, be seen right. in the community. Right. So, um, so I think that idea that like there's this, this alienation that I think has happened over time. I, I'd like to think it's, you know, it's gotten better since, since Vietnam, certainly, but we're still in some ways by going to this all volunteer force, we've just, we've made fewer and fewer people on that island. Well, the other thing you you're telling me about in in, right. in in like the con context we were chatting about fireworks, which is a big deal. And you're saying that there's like people have certain stereotypes about oh about gosh veterans. the veteran like with PTSD yeah the broken yeah. the broken veteran you the know broken that, veteran yeah that, and and so um, so you know so talk about you know talk about that and how that affects people's perception. Uh, so I have gone to hire people, and the first thing uh, somebody at my company, not my current company, but somebody will say at work is like, ooh, do we really want someone with PTSD here? Yeah. I'm just like, wait, wait. First of all, not all veterans have PTSD. Secondly, like, how could you possibly make an assumption about somebody's mental health without knowing anything about them? Right. So like, let's not err on the side of assuming that all veterans, like, have trauma in some way, right? I mean, I think it's I think it's so important to acknowledge the just terrible um, treatment that was given to Vietnam veterans in this country, in particular, and the lack of ability to um, sort of acknowledge the trauma of combat in Vietnam. That is hugely important. But you also can't lump everyone who's on that island who has served in the same way. I mean, there are lots of people who had entirely different experiences. And so because we tend to alienate and not understand that experience, we do assume that every, we put all of these assumptions on them, on all veterans. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I know. Go ahead, Alex, if, if you yeah, want to if, if I can add to that. Uh, yeah. I have PTSD myself, you know, and one of, the, one of the issues I had when I was transitioning out was, am I going to be successful? I don't yeah. know if I'm going to thrive in the real world, but, um, you know, I've had people who were, you know, well ahead of me, they, they moved on, they uh, transitioned into successful careers, and they were great mentors and leaders and examples of showing how someone with those types of issues does go on to persevere, does go on to do great things, and able to help other people. Um, so I think we need to do more work to break that stigmatization of what PTSD. That's a good point, to and you should have corrected me when I said that, because yeah, I mean absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> yes, even if we were to hire someone and they did oh, have yeah. PTSD, that yeah. is totally fine too. That's yeah. not a reason well, why we but, shouldn't hire someone. But so. also, and then, and then, and then, Nick, you talked earlier. You made some some reference to therapy for mm -hmm. for people with PTSD. So how um, how accessible is that type of therapy for veterans is it is it something that's accessible or is it something we need to work on we need to work on it yeah. now I'm a I I go to therapy at, at South County Vet Center and so there's a little bit to, to internal fighting with the VA so the vet centers which are trained therapists to handle PTSD um, they're all combat vets you know, to the therapist, at least at the South County. But you see, it's the, the VA resents the vet centers because in 1979, Vietnam vets said, we want these vet centers established where we can talk about civilian kills, where we can talk about, we can talk about uh, the, the problems of uh, friendly fire incidents and friendly fire kills and suicide and rape and all the ugly things that yeah. nobody wants to talk about 
that happens when you take some 19 and 20 year old, I'm gonna speak not, uh, I'm just saying young men because I'm talking about Absolutely. the war then, but yeah, it's, it's of course. Just not that way now. But you take those young men, you put them out in the bush, they don't come back for 45 days. All they do, they don't shower, don't eat out of sea rats, don't bathe, don't change their clothes sometimes. I mean, that's, you, and you put them in that situation and bad things happen. So we went and said the VA could not access the files of these vet centers. And so that's where I go. And the VA doesn't like that very much because they, because the vet centers are part of the VA, but they want, you know how the confidentiality. How, well, you know, government, you know, yeah. they, hey, we're the VA and you're part of the VA. We get right. to see the files. So there's always tension in terms of how many, how much money the VA will allocate to the vet centers yeah. because they want them to go to their centers, which are, you know, a little bit different. So it's that Long Beach is still tough. I mean, you know, parking was impossible. So now we've taken over the, the baseball diamond. Um, <laughs> not legally, but yeah. we've, we've taken it over. Nobody toes mm -hmm. anymore. Yeah. Um, it's just hard to access. It just, it still is. It's still just extraordinarily difficult. Go to work on that. Oh, I will. Yeah, yeah. We'll have yeah. to definitely. But um, I love that you shared about uh, you know the red, white, and blue organization. Um, see, th that's the type of work I'd like to get more involved in is connecting veterans to the community, making it more central. Right now, we're a community that's very close knit, tight, and um, I think being in that community helps you um, persevere th through some of the challenges we've identified today. Um, simply through peer support and you know through connections through other services. Okay. We do a terrible job with mental health in general, right? I mean, this is something sure. that, like police and fire, and there, there are a lot of, it, I mean, and just as like a regular civilian, it's yes, super yes. hard right now to get into an appointment for like any kind, yeah. you right. know, of any kind right. of treatment. So I, I, I think, think that's a societal, we right. suck at that. I really disagree with that. And I think like in the city, if I could just kind of go into what we're doing at the city, I mean, I really think that that's kind of one of the new frontiers that we should should address in the city and you know we did it with homelessness we've addressed certain issues that we tackle in Costa Mesa and then they become um, models for other communities and I think that's one of the things we really need to address because in my opinion that's one of you know not only is it so difficult for the people who are suffering uh, mental illness but it's also for the kind of the ripple effect that it has on the community yeah. when you have people out there uh, living with mental illness it's something we really need to focus on well, there's a heck of a lot of funding at the county level, so I hope oh, we can yeah. find some yes. way to tap into that. If we only knew that somebody. Be, if only we knew someone. <laughs> say perhaps on the board of supervisors. <laughs> yeah. Katrina Foley, if you're listening. If you're listening yeah. to the podcast, we're talking about you. Strength. So one other issue I just want to talk about while I, while I have a tiny little platform here. Yes, I'm of gonna, course I'm going to say it. So um, the... The overlap that I didn't see while I was in the military, but given what I do for a living now has become really, really apparent, is that of, of climate change on, on the military and the way that we operate. Um, so there was a period of time in Afghanistan where they were running fuel convoys. I and mean, think of all the places we were operating in Afghanistan, mountaintops and caves and way out in the middle of nowhere. And they had to run fuel to all of those places because everyone relies on a diesel generator to power their little outpost. Everyone needs a battery for their radio, but we had to charge the battery somehow, so you need a diesel generator. And one out of every 30 convoys was, was suffering a fatality mm. because 
because that was they were just sitting ducks. I mean, we were just running fuel trucks around right. the country, and then and then one out of thirty was being hit. Yeah, just just um, like driving a bomb. To totally yeah. right. I mean, and that was like the most dangerous job you could have, and actually, where a lot of women have been killed in Afghanistan is specifically because they were they were truck drivers, which was not supposed to be a frontline combat job. Um, and so, you know, but the idea that like, hey, we could probably power, like charge those batteries off of solar and battery storage, we could probably find a way to not have to refuel quite as often if we had more efficient vehicles. This, this overlap of all of these things that I, I do for a living, having that perspective now looking back on, I mean, just your average ship at sea, Bon Am Richard had to pull into port or had to under, um, underway replenish. Underway replenish, yeah. Like all of the time because yeah. of the way that we operate. And, that's one of the most exciting initiatives that I've been a part of. There's a group called Operation Free. I've been and I've lobbied people at the Pentagon about this idea of like how do you fully embrace. And so now climate change is listed as a threat multiplier. Climate yes. change is actually acknowledged right. yeah. at, you know, it, within DOD is something that like the military is invested in what the future looks like so that people aren't lost to just fuel truck runs. So I think that's, that's, um, that's one of those things that I don't think a lot of people kind of see that overlap, and I, I love to create more awareness about that. Well, that's good. You just did. I did. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for the platform, John. Wonderful point to have. Yeah. Okay, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for uh, everything you do for veterans. Thank you for bringing Heroes Hall to Costa Mesa and for what you continue to do. Thank you for being on our very first episode of Costa Mesa Now. I, I, we couldn't have picked a better person to do it and we couldn't have picked a better venue and thank definitely you. the venue I don't know about the person but you could not have picked a no, better I, venue. I want to say thank you to you Nick honestly because if there's you know this idea of like integrating veterans with like the rest of what is going on in the county like you you've been the forefront of that and you were the person we can kind of look to to figure out how to participate how to get engaged what we could be working on so thank you for the bottom yeah, of my heart you. really prepared us to take the baton next so yeah thank you for paving the way Thank you. Yeah, well, we got the new generation here. Yes. <laughs> really. Well, they're doing a great job. Thank you, Alex, our chief of staff in Costa Mesa. I didn't even, even uh, mention what you, what you do. Oh, yes. But yeah. Alex is our chief of staff. And then thank you also, of course, um, uh, our mayor pro tem, our great. And we're also, the other thing is we're in District 3. We're in District 3. She's the district. Are, yeah. yeah. She's I, the, I, I buried the lead. We're in District 3. I usually She's, ride my bike to here as well. So, yeah. yeah is, and so Andrea is the District 3 representative. So I'm really glad you were on the first episode of Costa Mesa. Well, now. thank you for having us, Mr. And I don't want to be. Uh, I, I don't want to be the council member that has to have the second episode because this was really good. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but I'll, I'll somehow I'll help them and they'll, they'll do okay. Great. All right, thank you very much. Thank to you all very much. Thank you, Ms. Fire. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. So I'd like to talk about some of the things that are going on at, at Heroes Hall and at the Orange County Event Center. So the Orange County Fair opens on Friday. July 16th. Tickets are limited, so buy yours online before they're all sold out. Every day, attendance is limited. Heroes Hall will also be reopening on opening day of the fair on July 16th. The current exhibit at Heroes Hall is Private Charles J. Miller World War II Paintings from the South Pacific. In October of 2021, the Santa Ana Army Air Base will be a permanent exhibit on the upper floor of Heroes Hall that will feature artifacts and educational information telling the story of the Santa Ana Army Air Base 
which operated on this land during World War II from 1942 to 1946. Thank you.